Hello, welcome to Four Questions. I'm here with Dr. Sean Lazar at Cambridge, and we're going to talk about her wonderful new book, Where Are the Unions? Workers, Social Movements in Latin America, the Middle East and Europe. So I'm going to be asking Sean whether unions are dead, what they can achieve, what enables them to be effective, and how they can be better supported. Okay, thank you so much for joining me, Sean. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So tell me, are unions dead? I mean, given precarity, globalisation, can they really achieve anything for workers' rights? Um, so certainly they're not dead. That's the first thing. Uh, what's happening, though, is I think that unions are shifting in form. Um, and there is... So on the one hand, unions are shifting in form and that there are lots of different kinds of unionisms uh, em emerging across the world uh, and including in Europe as well as Latin America and the Middle East, which is what we cover in mm. the book. Um, so, and those are often informed by even older traditions of anarcho-syndicalism, but also the kind of social movement activism that we know of from indigenous rights movements, from feminist movements, and all sorts of other kinds of movements. They're, they're, they're coming together and unions are responding both to situations of precarity and workers' lives and the influences of other kinds of social movements. So that's on the one hand that there's kind of new forms of unionism mm -hmm. emerging, um, you know, in the in these places. But on the other hand, I think there's also an important um, story, uh, quite a hegemonic story, that says unions are dead, given mm. precarity mm. and global mm. structural changes in the economies. Unions can no longer do anything for workers' rights. And I think this is an interesting story, and I think it is one that is told from both the right and the left. And I think that the only uh, group of forces, as it were, that uh, are, are benefited by that story is the kind of the forces of capital accumulation mm. and um, the, the kinds of uh, philosophies of labour market flexibility and the like. Mm. Um, and so there's, I also think... So it's a self-defeating prophecy. If we think they're dead, we don't try, then we, yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, it's, it's, and it's, it's not just that. I mean, it's it's... On the right, it's an actual attack on unions yeah. by saying that they're dead. Mm. And I think that this is part of the problem, which is that actually parts of the left have um, become um, part of that story, that same attack on the unions, only they're doing it from the other side, saying, oh, no, they're corrupt, mm. they're, they're co-opted, mm. they're totally irrelevant to us. It's like, well, actually, they're not. Mm. They are active um, and they are fighting for workers' rights in all mm. sorts of mm. places. Mm. We just often don't see it. Um, and that's actually part of what we wanted to do with the book, is actually to say, look, there's all these kinds of mo mobilisations uh, that we know of. There's Occupy, there's the Turn to the Left mm. in Latin America, there's more broadly the anti-austerity protests in Europe, and there's the Arab Spring. And we're, we're fed this kind of story, oh, it's just, you know, it's just about youth mobilisation, mm. it's, it's digital, you know, um, social media, and it's the power of Facebook and Twitter and the like. And all those are true. But it's also organised labour, actually. Mm. It's just, it's not actually gone away. What's happening is that it's just kind of shifting and responding to the new uh, circumstances. Talking about uh, different forms of unionism and also their success, maybe you could talk briefly about the Three Crocess campaign. Yeah. So these guys are absolutely fantastic. Mm. And they're so, so brilliant because they actually show that even in this kind of super neoliberal environment of outsourced workers who are cleaners uh, for the University of London, it's actually possible to achieve things for them. Mm. Pensions, sick pay, holidays, right? The three things. Mm. And, um, you know, they are, they're remarkable, actually. In the launch um, thing for the launch event for the book, 
um, really impressive. And so the authors of this chapter mm. who explain this campaign for, uh, for pensions, for sick pay and for holiday, uh, for the University of London cleaners, they're outsourced, you know, nobody's going to be able to change these people's mm. conditions. They actually came to talk at the launch event that mm. we held for the book and they were so inspirational mm. because they basically did not allow themselves to be... Um, taken in uh, by this oh you know this is all irrelevant unions can't mm, do anything mm. and they just went out and fought and they mm. achieved mm. something really kind of concrete uh, for for the workers who you know for the cleaners in, in the university and subsequently you know they've told us that they're going on they've been working uh, for um, uh, cycle couriers um, they are um, just got a they uh, they've just got um, an initiative for foster carers um, and there's obviously the current conflict going on with the LSE cleaners. Yeah. And, you know, and these are actual workers' struggles mm. that are going on, but they're having a tangible effect mm. on people's lives. I think that's a really important point that you raised, that it's partly about your, your mental state and your, your belief in whether it can work. Yeah. And if we tell ourselves that unions can't work and that workers have limited power, then we just don't try. Yeah. But their perseverance... Yeah and their, their confidence in it can also has that knock-on domino effect on other people. By seeing uh, Three Crosses achieve it, then other people become inspired, thinking, yes, we too. And so yeah. you see all these sort of copycat strikes that can shift other people's beliefs about what's impossible. So I think one of the amazing things about this book, well, is that you have people who are engaged in the struggles are also the authors. Yes. And by putting a spotlight on their successful campaigns, that hopefully inspires others to recognise that, yes, actually, given, even in conditions of migrants, even in conditions of precarity, yeah. globalisation, there's still a force for resistance. Yeah, so. it's actually possible and people are doing it. And it's really, really impressive what people are doing. OK, so what, um, what do you think specifically unions can achieve? What are the main strengths of unions? I have to say, I think that... Um, Mostly one of the things that I think unions can achieve mm. is actually a kind of transformation of self amongst the activists mm. and amongst the workers mm. um, and uh, a way of being and of living that actually resists mm. uh, the sort of dominant mm. story and the situations um, that they find themselves in. Um, and so therefore, I think that these kind of incremental achievements, the achievement of even just holding a meeting where you weren't allowed to before, mm. or even just by virtue of organising in order to put pressure on an employer uh, to rehire workers who've been mm. fired, um, or salary, <laughs> you know, salary negotiations. Mm. We tend to, we don't see um, the power in those sometimes. We tend to actually yeah. focus much more on the kind of the grand achievements, the sort of... The policy change, the yeah. The policy change mm. or the revolutionary moments. Mm. And, you know, unions can also achieve that. I mean, the Bolivian yeah, sure. case study also shows, effectively, the current president of Bolivia is... He's an indigenous uh, person and an indigenous leader, but he's also, and very much so, a union leader. I mean, he's the leader of the union of the cocaleros, mm. the coca growers. Mm. Um, and there you've got a union leader in government and that's got to do with the ways and the abilities that unions had unions among other collective organizations had to make a president resign mm, i mean this is mm. this whole process that happened in bolivia that culminated in the election of evo morales so unions can do amazing things they can fill tahrir square 
Yeah. You know, they can bring down. Mm. Um, but those process, those two processes are interlinked because yeah. in order to have the revolutionary moment, like an indigenous leader, yeah. it needs that slow, incremental, conflictual process of developing collective solidarity. Yeah. And it's the process of associating, the process of being part of a demo, being part of a march, you know, physically making the same noise through your yeah. footsteps can make people realise they're part of a whole. So rather than these sort of individual coping strategies for neoliberalism, yeah. we start to recognise our collective strengths, yeah. we start to become more confident in what we can achieve yeah. together. So just being part of those collective moments, whether it's a protest or a meeting or a gathering, yeah. then you start to think in other ways other than the neoliberal individual coping mechanisms of you know, working a longer day or pushing for you know, whatever individual increment. Yeah. I'd, so yeah. those two things are interconnected, I think. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And I also think that those kind of big moments of, of revolution or even of street demonstration, mm. um, we need to acknowledge the importance of the hard grind of yeah. organisation that actually goes into making those happen. On the one hand, the hard grind of actual tough work mm. of organising, of getting people together, of working to actually pull them together and to get them into agreement um, and to join with you. But then there's also the kind of affective processes mm. of coming together in sort of small groups and, you know, and having fun. I mean, this mm. is another thing yeah. of the Tres Cosas campaign. They also talked about these sort of dance moments and kind of carnivalesque uh, demonstrations and uh, you know the kind of exhilaration as well of of being in kind of collective spaces these are also all part of the the kind of ebb and flow really of um mobilization essentially yeah absolutely and i don't think that's something maybe some people don't talk about enough and certainly if we look at the latin american social yeah. movement literature the idea of fiestas the idea yeah. of community radio the idea of street murals celebrations of yeah. marginalized groups and i think it, we've learned from brexit we've learned from trump that it's not only about presenting the facts but creating that effective emotional appeal and, yes. and making people buy into a mov movement and identify with it and feel good as part of that yes. movement you know you get people out on the streets you get people to do stuff when they identify when it's fun and glorious so whether it's carnival or something else you know th those kind of yes. effective processes are so key it's not just about you know showing people the facts or saying yes. we can't live on a minimum wage it's creating group solidarity and enhancing people's self-confidence through coming together in a celebratory way. And I think that point about music and theatre and effect and whatever sort of indigenous street art, et cetera, et cetera, though that kind of effective stuff is something that maybe we haven't, so maybe something the left in Britain haven't thought enough about. So, for example, if we look back at the pre-Brexit campaign yeah. or, or people trying to, before Trump, you know, was there a sort of effective, glorious celebration, musical fiesta type yeah. thing going on? Uh, well, you're true. I, of course, I would inject a note of cynicism as well, which mm -hmm. is, of course, the other thing that Trump shows us is that mm -hmm. the affect of, of anger yeah. and hatred and mm -hmm. disgust is mm. also actually really powerful. Yes. I mean, I, you know, yeah. I, I, mean, I think we need to look at all these different movies. Yeah, emotions in general, sort of yeah. What, what, what happens. And the other thing that I would point to is the importance of caring for people. And mm. I think that comes out in the migration yes. chapter. And also, in, to an extent, in well, also in the Tres Cosas campaign chapter and the chapter about Greece and the caller centres, that actually it's, it's, all, it's about these moments of effervescence. It's about these moments of collective struggle. It's also about 
caring for each other, yeah. providing care. And I know, for example, the Argentinian unions, you know, they provide assistance with health care, yeah. uh, with, you know, leave from work if your child is ill and, and all these kinds of actual day to day things. And then in the Bolivian case as well, you've got a situation where actually the, um, the Cocalero unions in particular in the regions of the country where they're particularly strong, they, they organize life, they help mm, to organize mm, life, land mm, distribution, mm. but also care and, you know, and that's dispute resolution within the community, that's moments of effervescence and, and coming together in sort of collective mm. solidarity. And it's also, you know, looking after people, mm. actually, um, when they're, you know, when they're ill or when they can't work and, and, and those kinds of things. So, I mean, I think all these things come together. And I think that's a really important point that they're thinking about the battle against neoliberalism or tackling precarity isn't just about pushing for policy change it's yeah. it's reflecting on our own lives and yeah. how we deal with each other as colleagues uh, as, yeah. as, as neighborhood associations you know because we reproduce neoliberalism in our daily actions yeah. and being part of a collective that shows an alternative yeah. way of interacting an alternative way of being yeah. and we see the group doing that yeah. then we assume that's the norm right so you know when we see lots of other people acting in that way yeah. we sort of follow suit and that that creates a sort of snowballing effect yeah. so I think that's a really important point that about social movements galvanizing and mobilizing strength through these collective physical embodied yeah. processes and getting people to change their own mentalities their confidence in the collective their confidence yeah. in select uh, solidarity but also their, how we interact with each other you know yeah. we're not just fighting the man we're yeah. rethinking how how we engage with one another yeah yeah, yeah. that's really powerful so okay another question why do you think some collective struggles have been more effective than others? So in the book, there's examples from Argentina, Bolivia, Egypt. What, what do you think makes some more effective? Well, so this goes back to the question of, of how we're going to actually yeah, define sure. being effective. Um, if we're going to uh, sort of talk about um, being effective with respect to these kind of big moments mm. of um, getting rid of a president, right. making a president resign, mm. then... Um, I think, in actual fact, I mean, this, I'm afraid it's going to be the sort of classic anthropological answer, which is, it just kind of depends on, mm. on the context and on conjunctural mm. factors coming yeah. together. So, I mean, I could tell you from my previous work about Bolivia, but I mean, I think that the, the, the piece on Egypt is really, really interesting for um, uh, explaining the way that um, things kind of came together. On the one hand, you've got the development of uh, independent labour unions, but then you've also got the sort of the mass gatherings in Tahrir Square and, you know, and this kind of dynamic um, uh, that had the ultimate effect. Mm. Well, it wasn't the ultimate. I mean, mm. they, they got rid of President Mubarak and then we see the counter-revolution, you know, kind of coming coming back. Um, with regard to Bolivia itself, you know, that has to do also with quite localised conjunctural factors yeah. um, as well as uh, big questions. But then there's also a, another kind of effectiveness uh, which I would draw um, the example of Tunisia, actually, because Tunisia is, you know, a sort of iconic place for the Arab Spring. Mm. This is where Bouazizi mm. started it mm. all off, mm. right? Um, and and yet we haven't seen this very worrying and upsetting turn back mm. from, as far as I know, turn yeah. back to kind of dictatorship mm. and repression of workers' movements yeah. and of people that we've seen in Egypt. I mean, we've not seen, um, put it this way, we've not seen a counter-revolution quite as yeah. stark as we have in Egypt. Yeah. And one could argue that actually the power and the strength of the trade union federation in Tunisia um, helped to create a kind of social peace mm. uh, that prevented that kind of bloodshed. Mm. Mm. 
right? And yeah. that is effective. Mm. You know, we might think, well, okay, they didn't take over and, mm. you know, we've not had the revolution mm. there. But I tell you what, if we've not had lots of people dying mm. because of the counter-revolution and, and Unions save lives. <laughs> well, I just, you know, I just don't know. I mean, it's, this is what we think of, what, yeah. what do we think of as effective? Yeah. You know, we constantly want sort of dramatic change, mm. but actually maybe it's effective that, mm. um, you know, that, that people's shift patterns weren't changed. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, um, and then, and with the, with the, you know, the migrants workers, you, you know, the migrant workers in Italy, you know, maybe it's effective that they kind of stood up mm. to racism and, and, and actually able to kind of protest despite, you know, the kind of the awful situation yeah. that people are, are finding themselves in and it's getting kind of even mm. worse. And then in Spain, you know, the effectiveness there, that's not really down to unions as such. I mean, this is one of the cases where the traditional unions mm. have been found wanting, according mm. to our, our mm. authors. Um, and so, but what's happened there with regard to the kind of the actual mobilisation that, that was sort of happening there, that's had an effect on electoral politics mm. and on you know on 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 the elections mm. and on the, mm. the rise of Podemos so you know these are all it's difficult to mm. know yeah, absolutely so if we can't agree on what counts as what works then yeah well, there's no general answer yeah. for what has worked historically okay yeah. but that said how do you think unions could be better supported better supported so um it's very clear that um <laughs> they're very mundane things like legislative environment mm. make a real difference. Yeah. And I know this because whenever I go to Argentina and I find out what unions are allowed to do and they ask me what are unions allowed to do mm. in the UK, I'm very embarrassed at mm. the, the, um, the, the way we simply don't protect unions. So in Argentina, you can, you can decide on a strike and you have to notify the police mm. that you're going to have a strike. You have to, ideally, you'd give them seven days notification. Mm. Well, you think what you've got to go through here as a union in order mm. to have a strike, mm. which is a basic fundamental mm. right mm. of workers. So in, you know, and so, and then if you go to another extreme at the minute in Egypt, if you're a member mm. of a trade union of a particular set of trade unions, then your life is in danger. I mean, because mm. of state repression. Mm. So, um, and, and the same comes up. That's, that's one of the problems with the Lebanese you know, example, that in actual fact that, you know, you've actual, you've got actually repression. So the number one thing is then an enabling environment, you know, is it safe and relatively easy for people to organise collectively? So I think that's really important. Mm. I mean, I, I, I think we shouldn't um, downplay the importance of uh, the kind of, you know, protection of basic rights. Yeah. And obviously that enabling environment emerges as a long term process fought for by unions. Exactly. You know, it Absolutely. doesn't just happen to have an yeah, enabling. Right. It's something that unions yeah. have themselves achieved. Yeah. And as they push for more space to. Yeah. Pro- yeah. Yeah, okay. no, completely. And it's also something that can be quite fragile. Yeah. Yeah, and, absolutely. And the, it's not just that you kind of get this sort of incremental uh, collection of rights and more mm. rights and mm. more rights. Mm. It, it can also they can be swept away. As we're realising. As, as we, we realize. know too well. Okay, so aside from protecting that space mm. for unions, what else might help? I think I'm going to turn the question around Please. and actually ask what, uh, what it is that makes unions strong in some mm. places mm. And, and not in others. Okay. Um, and I think that uh, my kind of feeling at the minute has been that that's got a lot to do with the kind of historical experience yeah. of unions. Mm. Um, and, that, and, that, and that's very clear in um, the Latin American cases 
also a kind of a historical experience of collective organization. Mm, mm. So you go right back to colonization and you get indigenous peoples organizing collectively against colonizers. Yeah. Um, not just by fighting, but also even, you know, as you as you go through the centuries in the law courts to kind of protect rights. Mm. So all these different strategies of mm. collective organisation in the law courts, on the streets, mm. you know, um, uh, with weapons and, and the like. Um, you've got this this long standing history yeah. of a kind of and and therefore I think people resort to the collective. Yes, uh, they see a collective organisation as the way to solve problems. Yes. Um, and that's where I'm, I'm less um, uh, optimistic about here, which uh, that's what I think we have to recover here mm. uh, in, in the UK. And there's obviously parts of the country where that's never gone away. But I yeah. think if you think about the southeast, you know, we, we've got mm. to fight to re mm. recover. And that, you know. I think that goes back to two points that you've made. One is about unions are strengthened by our belief in them and yeah. our belief in what's possible is influenced by our history so yeah. for example in argentina you know after what 1996 2001 there were workers reclaiming the factories yeah. you know uh ownership and production yeah. but that was something that argentinians had previously done yeah. in the 1960s the 1970s yeah, 1980s absolutely. when they were occupying a ford factory yeah. for example so it's about the ways of engaging with government and the other yeah. that we normalize through our history yeah, so the absolutely. question is how do you reinvent and rekindle that where it doesn't have such a, a recent memory or where we've tried to wipe out that memory? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, one of the most fun things about the rest of my research has been actually just talking to people about their family histories of mm. political activism. Mm. And you can kind of discover some sort of some remarkable stories, mm. actually, of people. Uh, but I work in Argentina mostly. Mm. And so um, so that's that's been really good. And it, that's why I feel kind of invigorated yes. by working in Latin And I America. think one point, going back to your point about people's states of mind and Latin America, I think one of the reasons why Latin America has been successful in active social movements yeah. is partly the regional diffusion. You yeah. know, people see it happening in Bolivia, they see yeah. indigenous people mobilising in Ecuador, and therefore in Chile or Peru, people think, right, we can do it too. And so you yeah. see a formation of ethnic people's parties. So it's partly that process in terms of facilitating that change of mind is partly through horizontal networking yeah. and peer learning. Because, you know, just as we see what the Three Costas campaign can do, then there might be other people saying, right, let's learn from them, we can achieve yeah. it too. So I think maybe, apart from protecting the enabling environment, the next supportive thing is not to tell people about their rights or to tell people about unionism in abstract, but enabling them to learn from successful campaigns and yeah. be inspired by them. No, you're quite right. And in actual fact, you can even trace those connections between Latin America and Europe. Mm. So via, so um, a lot of the Argentinian... Um, uh, activists from mm. the 2001 crisis, uh, they had lots of connections with uh, Spanish oh, really? activists. And so that uh, the people who then became indignados in Spain uh, were, you know, one of their influences was the Argentinians. You know, and there's lots of Argentinians who sort of, I mean, migration has an effect in yeah. this, right? So there's lots of uh, Argentinians and Ecuador, Ecuadorians uh, in, in Spain, you know, these big kind of communities. Yeah. And so they actually... So that was one of the influences, not the only one. Of course so it wasn't the usual model that we think of in development studies, is the global north going oh, yeah. over there and telling them about their rights. It was the, the reverse, no, was it? No, absolutely not. And I mean, in fact, then you've also got a kind of a, a, a transmission uh, between sort of Argentina, Spain and um, Greece. You know, they, yeah. I mean, and there are recovered factories in Greece. I mean, yeah. worker-occupied yes, factories yes. in Greece. And they're looking to 
the Argentinians to, you know, for, for sort of influence. And then if you look at the Tres Cosas campaign, mm. there's a reason it's called the Tres Cosas mm. campaign, <laughs> because um, those uh, cleaners uh, who first, you know, provided the impetus for mm. the organisation mm. in London uh, were Ecuadorians and yeah. Bolivians. Yeah. And so they, um, who, had, who had Spanish citizenship because they'd migrated from Ecuador uh, and, and Bolivia to Spain, so got their Spanish citizenship, and that then meant that yes. they could come to London. So you've got actually all these sort of transnational movements, and 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 it's funny because Henry Chango Lopez, who's one of the authors of mm. the about the Tres Cosas mm-hmm. campaign, he sort of said, no, 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 I wasn't ever, you know, I wasn't ever a political before. Mm. My family mm. wasn't political, and all that kind of mm. stuff. But it, to me, I just think it's it it cries out for some kind of analysis. Yeah. The fact that actually. If you look at the, those campaigns of cleaners, you you see people, um, you see a big influence of the Latin American community right, yeah. in London. Mm. And if you and and I think this a similar thing happens when you look at the Justice for Janitors mm. um, uh, campaign, older, you know, mm. of the nineteen nineties in Los Angeles. Mm. You know, this is this is Latinos and Latinas mm. who are, I think, in part bringing with them traditions of collective mm. organisation. Um, and you know, and even if it's just the notion that this will have an effect. Mm. Um, that's kind of really important. I think that's a really exciting message, the idea of international migration, enabling us to learn from collective processes of resistance and be inspired by them. Well, so we are recording this podcast on the uh, 8th of June, on the day of the election, so we will yet to find out whether a collective movement resisting austerity will work in Britain. Um, But thank you very much for your time, You're very welcome. (laughs)